The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First from Hebrews chapter 1, and then from Luke chapter 2. And I'm looking not so much at the exact phrasing and everything of these texts as at a theme that is presented. Breaking in, actually, in the middle of verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 1, where the author is writing about the superiority of Christ. And he says of him that he became, quote, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He made his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And down in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering saints sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And then if you turn to Luke chapter 2, we see the angels doing exactly that, serving those who are called to salvation. This word, Luke 2.8, and in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's own word. You cannot sing a hymn this time of year without those fellows showing up, the angels. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plain. 
It came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth, and so on and so on. There's no place in all of the Bible where angels cluster and seem to flood the scene in large crowds as they do in the birth narratives of Jesus Christ, and with very good reason. The birth of Christ is the premier moment in history. God unveiling, opening his great gift that would bring about salvation for those who believe. No wonder these mysterious created beings we call angels, and and the word angelos in the Greek means messenger. No wonder they who serve the Lord as messengers are extra busy around this event, the event of Christmas. Now, Christians certainly ought not to flinch to believe in the reality of angels. We've never seen one. Maybe some of you feel you have. Some of us have experienced strange people doing odd things in our lives, and we say, I wonder if that person was an angel. I'm not ready to affirm or deny that. But even though you may say you haven't seen one, I also challenge anyone here to tell me that they have seen electricity. I don't mean the sparks that are made. I mean electricity. Or have seen an atom. Or that you have seen the wind. You've seen the effects of the wind, but you haven't seen the wind. And there are all kinds of powerful forces in our world that are actually not seen by the human eye. Angels, we learn, are beings created by God who serve him. They dwell with God. They enter this world and leave this world as God has errands for them of communication or protection of some kind. You know, there are a lot of myths about angels, and the Christmas cards don't really help these out too much. And every Christmas card, every angel wears white, and every angel has wings, and every angel is female. All of those things are basically questionable. There are times when angels appear, and it is said, for example, at the tomb of Jesus at the resurrection, an angel dressed it all in brilliant white was there, but not always. Many times they come in appearance as a human being, and only afterwards does someone realize this was a supernatural messenger. And by the way, they're often male, and they often don't have wings. Angels are mentioned a hundred times in the Old Testament, 160 plus times in the New Testament. Obviously, the writers of Scripture saw these beings from God as very real and very active in our world. And they induced fear quite often because they seemed to come with a great authority about them. No wonder that some people, such as those to whom the letter of Hebrews was written, feared angels or revered angels in such a way that they put them on too high a pedestal. Maybe the way some churches today elevate saints of history and even pray to them and so on, which we think is really wrong and improper. The Hebrew Christians being written to there in the letter of Hebrews had a wrong regard. You know, it's a good thing to respect them, but wrong to worship them, wrong to put them anywhere near on the plane of God. Did you ever indulge your fancy to think what angels must have thought about the birth of Christ? 
Maybe for you that's kind of a fictional way of looking at things. You say, well, if we can't even see angels or talk with them, how would we know what's going on inside their heads? Aren't you departing here into kind of a flimsy area where you can't tell anybody what they think? Well, I do think we can at least theorize and maybe theorize with some firm ground beneath our feet. Because the Bible tells us numerous things about angels and what they do that allow us to project a little bit. There's an introductory word you should think about in, in the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, verse 12, Peter is writing about the ancient prophets who carried God's word by the inspiration of the Spirit and predicted things that were coming about the Messiah. And Peter tells us mysteriously that prophets sometimes wrote about things that they themselves didn't totally comprehend. Even though they gave what God put in their minds, they themselves were maybe questioning, well, when is this going to happen? Or how will that be understood? And Peter says there in 1 Peter 1.12 that these prophetic writings are, quote, things into which angels long to look. I think there's a wonderful observation there because it's telling us that even those beings that dwell close to God didn't comprehend everything. They hadn't connected all the dots of what God was doing in history as he brought forth his son. And we, I believe, as we think about another Christmas, will have our worship of Christ enhanced and, I hope, filled out in a way if we would realize that even God's most informed servants were full of wonder and astounded and wanted to examine that, that word angels long to look into it. The Greek word there in First Peter 1.12 is, is like you would examine something with great curiosity. Maybe a, a deer hunter in the woods this time of year sees a, a print of a hoof of a deer and he's looking, is that a fresh print? How large a deer is that likely to be? Where is it headed? Angels long to comprehend what God was pointing to and what he was doing in the coming of Christ. Well, the first point I would give you today is this. And I would say angels gaped in amazement at one much higher than themselves who was made very low. And this is where Hebrews 1 comes in to think about for just a minute, not covering all the detail that is there But the audience that got that letter called Hebrews did include people who were probably thinking too much of angels, elevating angels too much, adoring them. And the writer wanted to caution them and say, look, Jesus is not not an angel himself. He's not just the greatest angel. He is higher than any angel could be. His character, his name makes him higher. What angel, the author argues, ever was told by God You are my son. You are my firstborn, my only begotten. What angel is said to occupy the throne of God? What angel could ever be put on a plane with Christ? No, he says angels serve Christ. They are not his equals. And it is Christ Jesus who is called son and Lord and God there who creates and sustains and governs. He's the one who's omniscient and omnipotent and unchanging. He is superior to every other heavenly being in every possible way. If you worked for a large corporation in America, let's say General Motors or something like that, a company that that had a, a CEO, president, 
You can imagine that president having a large, plush office suite high in the tower somewhere, and here's the manufacturing plant over there, and there's the office tower. What would the employees of General Motors think if that CEO came down out of that tower and with his expensive several thousand dollar suit and his expensive Italian shoes and he went into the plant and put on greasy coveralls and took the lowest job in the plant cleaning up after the workers. People would be astounded. They would think it was some kind of a publicity trick or something unless they saw him coming day after day and continuing in that task. Well, that's a little bit of what Hebrews later says, Hebrews 2.9 tells us of Jesus after it is said in chapter 1, he's the highest. He's way above every angel. It says in Hebrews 2.9, he volunteered to be made lower than the angels in order to taste death for everyone. He was the CEO from the corporate tower. Come into the dirt and the grease and the, the cleanup of the factory floor. The one with the highest station coming down into the depths. Maybe you would say about much of the sermon that I'm departing into fiction too much, but I would think we have pretty good reason to understand from the role of angels that the Bible tells us that they could hardly take their eyes off the Lord of heaven as he was poised at the brink of heaven to dive past a thousand galaxies of stars into the womb of a young woman to be a little mass of cells that would grow to be the real man, the Son of God become flesh. You know, stop and think a minute about this. You know a little bit about the Secret Service and what they do to protect the president, how they're ready to throw their bodies in between the president and harms. Let's let's say President Obama decided to, to pay a surprise Christmas visit to Afghanistan. And not only would he go to Afghanistan, but he would say, take me to some outpost near the enemy. And not only that, but he would go with maybe no more protection than a steel helmet on his head to to the very place where the bullets were singing around the heads of the soldiers and, and go and stand there to examine what was going on. Can you imagine the Secret Service? They'd be going crazy. They would be grabbing him. They'd be pulling him back. They'd be putting themselves between him and harm and hustling him back into his armor-plated vehicle to get him out of the way. Could we think there was anything like that by these servants of God as the Son of God, the highest one on God's throne, came forth and subjected himself to the harm and the ignominy and the spitting and the mockery and the rejection of coming into this world? I like to think perhaps angels who could have provided a wall of flashing swords were ready to stand between him. And the father said, stand and do not interfere. There he was hungry in the desert. Satan tempted him in the most extreme way. He was right there facing what it meant to be a man and be hungry and weak. And we read at the end of that that an angel ministered to him. There he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying until his sweat came like drops of blood in the extreme consideration of what was just before him. And we read again, an angel 
minister to him. And then he said when they came to arrest him, remember in Gethsemane, Matthew 26 tells of the sword being drawn and Peter slicing an ear and so on, and Jesus stopping that and say, put up your swords. Don't you think that I could call my father and he would put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? The Old Testament tells of those things. There are several mysterious examples of where Israel was surrounded by a great enemy force. And during the night, unseen beings were there and noises were heard. And until morning, Israel figured out here were bodies of the enemy dead all over the plain. God had fought for them in some way they could not explain. Jesus could have had that. But he refused it. And I would picture legions of angels by the ranks of thousands standing tall, like Marines, standing and saying, send us, let us interfere. And they were told to stand and stand still. And they stood there with the tears running down their faces as there Jesus went to a cross and shed his blood and died according to the will of God. Because the order for them to interfere never came. Angels gaped in amazement at one higher than themselves who was made very low. Secondly, I think we can say from the scripture that angels study mankind with great fascination. Now, something is done with mankind that is not done with them. We read, and I'm not going to go into the development, but you should know that the Scripture says that mankind, every man, woman, and child ever born, are fallen into sin and need redemption. Angels don't exactly know that. Some of them rebelled. We have the strong hints of that, that Satan led a rebellion, that some angels followed him, and today they are demons destined for outer darkness. But every man and woman and child ever born fell and needed redeeming. Hebrews analyzes the fact that it is not angels who had a Savior born for them. Hebrews 2.16 says that he did not offer himself for angels, but for us. And so they're looking at this and saying, look, here are these people. They have no hope. They have no understanding. They're spiritually dead when they're born in this world. They're pretty poor material when it really comes down to it. They aren't even very smart a lot of the time. And God comes to them, awakens them, lets them see their situation, shows them what Christ has done, and brings them into a new birth so that they are justified by God's grace through faith. And he makes them new. He works in them and recreates them. Isn't it amazing that God would work with material like those human beings? There's a wonderful declaration that Jesus made in Luke 15.10. He said there that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Was that just a figure of speech? You can think so if you want, I guess. I believe he was speaking of a fact, of heavenly beings that behold the marvelous work of God on this earth and they are prouder of what they see when a new soul comes to trust Christ and be awakened in him than any grandparent is on holding their grandchild for the first time. Imagine it. You know, you, some of you grandparents know about this. You didn't have to go through birthing that baby 
It's great to be a grandparent. You get all the good stuff. And then you send them home when they're tired and whiny, you know. Look at this. Look at this. And then God commissions his angels to care for this newborn saint. The scripture says things like that. Hebrews 1.14 calls angels ministering spirits to minister to those who are coming to faith. Various Old Testament places bear that up as well. Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord, and camps around those who fear the Lord to deliver them. Psalm 91, God will command his angels concerning you, that's people of faith, to guard you in all your ways. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, an angel's always going to save your life. We have to die at some time. But it's saying that God will not allow the eternal soul of a believer whom he is redeeming to be destroyed. Even his heavenly beings will cooperate towards our reaching our appointed ends. Angels watch us with fascination. Thirdly, this. Angels eagerly await Christ's final coming into glory. You know, they don't possess all knowledge. It's said that they desire to look and understand things that the prophets were saying. And we don't believe they know the day or the hour of this final great event that they're going to be involved in when Christ comes to end history. Jesus actually said in Mark 13, no one knows the day or the hour of that second coming, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son. Only the Father. Now, you know a little bit about how children anticipate Christmas. Pretty joyful, pretty expectant. I still remember the day uh, when I was, I guess, at the age of not quite figuring out calendars when my grandparents were at our house for Thanksgiving and my grandfather must have said, Michael, next thing you know, it'll, it'll be Christmas. And I went to bed and thought about that and stayed awake thinking about it for a little while. And half an hour later, I trotted out into the living room where my grandparents were still there. And I said, does that mean Christmas is tomorrow? Because I didn't have a sense of time. Christmas was coming. I was excited. I think the scripture says the angels are eagerly awaiting the final exuberant grand day when their sovereign king is, is revealed and no longer just in one little village in Bethlehem in a, in a long ago place, but revealed to the eyes of the world. And when the angel praises are going to be heard by the planet and in anticipation of that last great day, I see the angels watching the living drama of the Christian church. And the lives of Christians, as if they had, you know, I don't know how many 1,500 channels I have on my satellite dish that I can watch. The angels can watch all those channels at one time of what the church is doing. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, Christians are made a spectacle before the whole universe to angels as well as men. Ephesians 3.10 says, not now, today, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Do you hear what this is saying? What God is doing by the gospel in the church today is a sight of rejoicing, a spectacle in the drama of redemption, and heavenly beings rejoice to see it. When a Wycliffe missionary finishes a new translation of the Scripture, 
When a new church is planted where the gospel has never been heard faithfully and with perseverance before, when any new child, a young child, first awakens and has the understanding they need Christ and they call him by name and claim him as Lord, the angels are watching. The angels are rejoicing. For they see these things as being one step closer to that grand day when God's goals on earth are going to be completed and how they're going to shout when that day comes. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will then come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think the angels made a fuss the first time Jesus appeared, wait till you hear the fuss the second time. It's going to rock the planet. Things into which angels long to look are what we call the unsearchable riches of Christ, the wonders of new life in him, the protection, the change, the work of the Holy Spirit that he brings to a believer. So if this Christmas you turn to him, perhaps as you never have before in your life, or you turn back to him after having wandered from him for a long time and you say, Lord, I realize as I never did before that this Christmas thing isn't a myth or a fable. It's you, the supreme living God, come to earth in the person of your son. I come to him and call him my Lord. If you say that, don't be surprised if maybe you hear a little echo in the distance. It's the rippling sound of the angels rejoicing over you. Thanks be to God. Our Father, these truths are amazing things. They tantalize us. They're just beyond the scope of our vision. Yet your word repeatedly tells of these beings who love you, who serve you, who would die for you, who would do anything you commanded them to do. and says they're actually interested in us. Yet we thank you, our God, that we're not saved by the action of any angel, but by Jesus, the high son, and no other. We praise his name. We lift him up. We give him our trust and our adoration. Amen.